On February 4th, 2015, a TransAsia ATR-72 takes off out of the Shangshan Airport when something goes wrong in the cockpit, what caused this flight to hit the highway and crash into a river. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Any housekeeping? Um, oh, we said we were going to mention it. Big news! Nick got the job! I got a job. Yay! That has him working at the big airport here in Denver. Yes! I get to work at Denver International for an undisclosed airline that we have talked about before. End of story. <laughs> Okay, but like biggest perk, at least in my opinion, not even the flight benefits that I get to partake of. I am very excited about. He gets a manager's parking spot at DIA. Which, if you know anything about DIA's parking situation lately, that sounds great. (laughs) Do you get to use it off hours too? I don't know. I'm gonna find out. I really that would be so. Dude, that would be amazing. But we'll find out. Anyways, yes, I'm gonna have a manager's parking spot and all sorts of good stuff. It comes with all sorts of good benefits and. And it's going to be a very, very, very interesting, very good job. I'm very, very excited. He starts in January. I do start in January. I get to wait until the new year, thank goodness, because the holiday travel season would be an awful time to start. Yeah. (laughs) So there's that good news. Uh, December listener stories, because this episode comes out at the end of November is the best gift you ever got, I think is what we decided. Something like that. Sure. I don't know. And it sure. doesn't have to be a, a quote-unquote holiday gift. It could have been a birthday gift or whatever. Oh, yeah, 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 because I yeah, got yeah. Nick the, the, the headset. Yeah. Yes, and then I mentioned, like, I got a glider flight once. And... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, the best gift you ever got. Tell us a story about that. Okay, I think that's it. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today. We are covering TransAsia Airways Flight 235. Thank you to our patrons, Kate and Will. Oh, okay. Ah, for recommending you. this episode. Fun fact, I tried covering this as a Miranda sode, and then I covered a different crash. You covered it happened the wrong one. <laughs> literally like a week and a half apart or some like that. Like it was like really close together time-wise, and so... Wait, which one did you cover? Um, look up the Miranda episodes. I don't remember. It's TNA something, but I don't remember what it was. Literally, the the flight is like very, very close, and so I thought it was covering this flight, and I I wasn't. I was covering the other flight, obviously. The one you covered happened before. Just in case anyone cares. It's. I don't think it's the same cause either. I don't remember what that cause was. It was a long time that ago. That one was Seafit. Oh, Miranda's okay. favorite. <laughs> Seafit. Not entirely. Oh, sh- it was okay. not controlled. No. There's nothing controlled about this. Still has the same root problem. Lies. Okay. Now, think about it. <laughs> Having... We'll leave that be. We're covering TransAsia Airways Flight 235. This happened on February 4th of 2015, so relatively recent. All things considered, this was... An ATR-72-600, which was a newer version of the ATR at the time. It still is a newer version of the ATR. They still produce it. This one had the tail number Bravo-22186. 
typical of all airlines in China or Chinese regions. They have this Bravo tail number. This flight was to be from Taipei's Songshan Airport to Kinmen, which I believe is also in Taipei. So this is not a very long flight, and this is out of the airport that is in the center of the city in Taipei. But there are two airports in Taipei, and this is the smaller of the two. That doesn't mean it's not busy. That doesn't mean it's small. It does have a single runway, but it is a busy airport. Smaller is, yes. is a key word there. Smaller. Yes, and it's right smack in the middle of the city, unlike the other airport, which is much bigger, but it is outside of the city. The captain for this flight was Liao Chin-sung. He was 42 years old. He had 4,914 hours total, of which 3,151 hours were on the ATR. That's ATRs in general, because he only had 250 hours on the ATR-72-600. Well, if it's relatively new, then that makes sense. The airplane was relatively new to the airline. The first officer was Liu Chi-chung. He was 45 years old. He had 6,922 hours total of which 5,687 hours were on ATRs, of which 795 hours were on the ATR-72-600 specifically. Then, there was a first officer in the observer seat. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about this, because this is where things get really strange. If you didn't notice the one strange thing already, but things get stranger. This observer was Hung Ping Chung, he was 63 years old. He had 16,121 hours total. Holy crap. Of which 5,306 hours were on ATRs, of which eight hours <laughs> total were on the ATR 72600. That's why he's observing. That's why he's observing, because he's just along for New the ride. to the aircraft, yeah. Yes, on this specific type. Now... What did you note about him? He was the oldest, and he by far and away had, had the, the most, most hours. Yeah. Yes. He had well over what both the other pilots had combined. combined. So, he was the most experienced, but he has no actual role in this flight. He also is a first officer. Can we talk about that? Yes. He's a first <laughs> officer for a reason. But anyways. Okay. I don't talk about it. So. It's fine. He's a first officer mostly because he's new to this airplane. He would probably only be a first officer for a little while and then transition to captain. That said, did you notice anything about the actual first officer on this flight versus the captain? He has more hours? Yes. He has more hours than the captain. Which is Why is weird. that? Yes, but why is that important? Because they're actually both captains for the airline. Oh, this <laughs> again. Okay. <laughs> They're, they're both captains for the airlines, but Didn't for this we just airline, go over we literally just had an episode where that was the case. Yeah, the really confusing one was the uh, TU-154. Mm-hmm. So, kind of strange, but they're both captains. That said, there is an agreement that the pilot in the right seat is the first officer, and in this case, he will also be the pilot monitoring, and the captain in the left seat will be the pilot flying. Okay. And he is the captain. He is the captain. Okay. Well, at least we know that going in. Yes. yes. It is clear. Left captain, right first officer. Left As normal. pilot flying, right pilot monitoring. That's so. not necessarily normal, but the first part's normal. Yeah. Yes. There were to be 53 passengers and five crew for a total of 58 people on this flight. There were two cabin crew on top of the three flight crew. So. Mm. The crew had arrived that morning at Songshan. 
for two round trips to Kinmen with this airplane. The first round trip went without issue, and they returned to Songshan at 10.12 p.m. to begin the next round trip. So they had already done one whole round trip to the same place they're going next. Right. False sense of security. Yes. Yeah, actually. Actually. (laughs) (laughs) The flight was scheduled to depart at 10.45 a.m. The captain was to be the pilot flying, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. They were to fly the Mucha 2 Quebec standard instrument departure. So this is really, this is a, a standard way of leaving the airport. These are published procedures for every airport, and when they're flying an instrument departure... They are following this specific route to go in a certain direction of flight for their planned destination. 10.51 a.m. and 39 seconds. The flight began its takeoff roll on runway 10 at Songshan. Four seconds into the roll, the first officer stated that the automatic takeoff power control system was not armed. This is just a system that basically keeps the airplane in a throttle-forward, stable flight position for their takeoff. The pilot flying, or the captain, stated, really? And then he said, okay, continue to take off. The pilot monitoring replied, we will continue. So they have agreed. They're going to continue takeoff. This is not a critical system for takeoff. No, and it is part of the analysis in the report, and I kind of glanced over it. We'll talk about it more in okay. the findings. Because I don't. The what is it? Sorry. AP, what? The ATPCS. Oh, okay, okay. Which is the, the Automatic Takeoff Power Control System. That said, seven seconds later, the first officer stated, Oh, there it is. ATPCS armed. 10.52 a.m. in one second, the flight lifted off of the runway. The flight crew activated the autopilot and selected an altitude of 5,000 feet and an airspeed of 115 knots as they climbed away from the airport. The LNAV, or lateral navigation, was also selected on the autopilot, which would allow the aircraft to follow the planned flight route without any input from the pilots. So this is how most airplanes operate these days, with the autopilot. 10.52 a.m. and 34 seconds, the airplane was in a right bank at 1,000 feet when the air traffic controller instructed the flight to contact Taipei approach. Pretty standard operations. Four seconds later, as they were still turning and climbing through 1,200 feet, a warning began sounding in the cockpit. Uh Uh-oh. This took the crew by surprise, and they quickly realized that it was an issue with one of the aircraft's two turboprop engines. Also, this is the master warning? Yes, master this is caution. the caution? Yes, mm-hmm. so this means something is uh, terribly wrong. Big, big wrong. Big yes. wrong. There's something... a big wrong. Yes, there's a big wrong. <laughs> so this is this is sounding in the cockpit, and they yeah realize it's one of the two turboprop engines. So this is a high-wing twin turboprop. This is a commuter airplane, in case you needed a refresher. We have talked about this before. At 10.52 a.m. and 41 seconds, the autopilot was disconnected by the captain as they climbed through 1,300 feet. Two seconds later, the captain stated, I will pull back the engine one throttle, and then he did so. Both flight crew then stated heading mode, then selected this on the autopilot. So this would allow them to take part of the control away and leave it to the autopilot. Basically directional control. Was there a reason... That he pulled back the number one engine? They believe... I mean, there's a problem with an engine, so they're kind of So they out. just assumed it was the number one engine? Well, we'll, we'll talk about all that. Okay. I, okay. Because all we've heard now is like a master caution, which just means, okay, there's something wrong with the... 
Yes, but these are... I mean, this is still a modern airplane. They have all the computerized everything. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Okay. Keep that is a good question. Great. It's a very, it very, 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 <laughs> okay. very, very pertinent question. Okay, Keep good. it in mind. Save it for later. All right. I refuse I'll, to answer. I'll put it in my back pocket. <laughs> yeah. You, you keep that one handy. <laughs> at the time, they were at 1,485 feet and 106 knots flying a heading of 131 degrees. Six seconds later, the heading was changed to 92 degrees. So they were to make a left turn. They began turning back to the left, and at 10.53 a.m., the first officer stated, quote, Okay, engine flame out, check. The captain stated, check. The first officer then stated, watch the speed. They were flying at about 101 knots at the time. The captain then stated, pull back number one, and the number one engine was reduced again. Seconds later, the, in- the aircraft reached 1,630 feet before descending. At that time, the stall warning began sounding in the cockpit for a second. One second. The captain stated, terrain ahead, 10.53 a.m. and 13 seconds, just seconds later. The stall warning activated again with the stick shaker for four seconds. At this time, the aircraft was in a left bank of about 10 to 20 degrees, turning through 87 degrees in their heading. So they've gone beyond the 92. They were trying to aim back for the airport. We'll get there. They were descending. They won't. No. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. It's terrible. I have so many questions. I'll wait till you're done. Yeah. But I have so many questions. Um, Don't worry. That's kind of why I wrote it this way. <laughs> oh, my God. You're meant to have a lot of questions. Great. <laughs> they were descending through 1,526 feet at 101 knots at the time. The stall warning and the stick shaker activated several more times until 10.53 and 27 seconds. So this hasn't been very long, by the way, if you're paying attention to the times, which I know it can be hard to follow. This is all of about 30 seconds so far. So it's the stall warning has now activated four times? Quite a few times, actually. Many times in 30 <laughs> seconds? Yes. Safe to say. They're a little slow. You think? Yes. Let's just keep pulling back an engine, though. That's a great idea. However, at 10.53 a.m. <laughs> and 24 seconds, the number one engine was shut off. They were flying at 110 knots at 1,165 feet at the time and descending still. 10.53 a.m. and 35 seconds, the first officer declared an emergency to the air traffic controller. Wait, I have a question. Yes. Sorry, before we go further. I don't know if we specifically talked about this, but I feel like it should be a thing. You can recover a stall with one engine, right? You can recover a stall with one engine. Okay. It's not great, especially when you're flying over the city. No, and I you need airspeed. Yeah, and, and they're not lift. very high. But But this is if you know anything about the island the city of Taipei on the island of Taiwan, it's a very hilly green mountainous island so the terrain is very bumpy yes it's not flat and it's a city with high rises it's a city yes with some of the tallest buildings in the world anyways sorry i just i feel like we have an engine shut off they're stalling Mm -hmm. can they recover it with only one engine that was my right my 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 nope nope i got it brain went there we're getting there (laughs) anyways so the first officer declared an emergency to the air traffic controller at that time they were flying a heading of five zero degrees. But now we're in a right bank, so now they were suddenly turning back to the right. The flight crew then attempted twice to engage the autopilot, but it did not engage. 10.54 a.m. and 27 seconds, the aircraft entered an aerodynamic stall. Yes. At that time, they were less than 400 feet above the ground. Oh, no. 10.54 a.m. and 34 seconds, the enhanced ground proximity warning system began sounding pull up in the cockpit. 
I wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. The left bank angle then increased dramatically and suddenly, just before it struck a taxi driving on a highway, followed by a fence and a light post on the edge of the highway. After those collisions, the aircraft continued to bank until it crashed into the Keelung River below in an inverted attitude just three nautical miles from the airport in the middle of the busy city of Taipei in the middle of the day. The aircraft immediately broke up and was heavily damaged. Rescuers responded quickly and people began being pulled from the wreckage in the river by rescuers. In all, 39 passengers, three flight crew, and one cabin crew perished in the accident, so all of the flight crew. Many of the passengers and one of the two cabin crew perished in the accident. 13 passengers, one cabin crew, were seriously injured, and one passenger was not injured at all. Wow, good for them. Yes. They were likely at the back of the airplane, because the back of the airplane is the part that was actually seen in most of the videos, which we will talk about the videos in a bit. And it is seen floating on the river. It was the most intact portion of the passenger cabin. Mm. Uh, next question. Mm-hmm. After all of that. Mm-hmm. If you only have one engine going, mm-hmm. can the autopilot fly the plane? Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll talk about that, too. Okay. Cause that I, I will talk about. I mean, whenever the plane's in a, in a serious situation where the autopilot's like, nope, your problem. And so I just read the very, just curious. the very brief section of this report on aircraft recovery jumping way ahead they could not have recovered after that stall after the last stall warning the stall warnings took 900 feet of altitude and they couldn't do it not with one engine not as low to the ground as they were that's not to say if they had more altitude they couldn't do it but in this particular scenario they could not do it okay so why'd they turn the number one engine off we're gonna talk all about this great because I'm confused as... Because I know the first officer said something about a flame-out, but my question would be, did they actually know it was a flame-out? We'll talk about this. I'll talk about it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this investigation was performed by the Taiwanese Aviation Safety Council, or ASC, with the help of the French BEA as a representative of the country manufacturer, as well as the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, or TSB, representing the country, the country of engine manufacturer. Side note, for all who care, the Taiwanese Aviation Safety Council is no longer called that. As of 2019, they are now the Taiwanese Transportation Safety Board. Or the TTSB, much like we have the NTSB here. Yep. Both black boxes were retrieved from the wreckage the evening of the crash, and the pictures of them look pristine! Well, if you said that the back of the plane was the thing that was like most intact, that kind of makes sense. Yep. Yeah, they were just a little wet. They were then sent to the ASC Investigation Lab for data retrieval, but we all know that takes time, so we'll come back to that later. Investigators could not begin to go through the wreckage, since they had to wait for both search and rescue to finish up their jobs as well as wait for salvage crews to get the wreckage out of the river. In the meantime, one of the most famous pieces of evidence from this crash came to their attention. We have a YouTube video linked on our website, and I highly recommend pausing this episode and go watch it first, because it is dashcam footage, as we mentioned, from the highway that the plane struck just before it went into the river. We here have seen it a bajillion times, but there were some things about it that investigators noticed immediately that I did not. And I wonder if you will. I I remember when this video came out. Like, I remember the day this happened, and I remember being like, holy crap! (laughs) Wow! This was like when I, almost when I graduated high school. Yes. This is, I mean, it's, it's really, it's scary. Yep. So we're going to pause here for a second. 
Okay, you're back? You watched the video? We did. You sure? Maybe go back and watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Miranda, what are your observations? The plane kind of level. Can't, sorry. The plane. <laughs> the plane came in kind of level, tilted to the left, right? Uh, to, to the, the left. left. To the left. Hit was like basically 100% sideways. Yeah, it was like 90 perp- degrees. Perpendicular to the road. It was in a 90 degree bank. Yes. And hit at the taxi, went down through the highway uh, lamp, the lamppost and the fence on the highway. So yeah. Dives right down out of view. Yes. So to answer the question that you had while viewing the video that was not recorded, were there people in the taxi? Yes. Yes. There were two people in the taxi. The taxi driver was seriously injured and the passenger was minorly injured. They but they were, didn't die. They did not die. Good for them. Pretty fortunate. Little, I can't even imagine. You're just driving down the highway. Yeah. A wing comes through your taxi. Pretty fortunate considering they had a wing come through the side window at basically 100 miles an hour. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. So, it was in a left bank. That's a primary observation. What are some things that could lead to that? Well, flight control surfaces is certainly a viable option. On the wings are ailerons, which move up and down opposite each other. If you want to turn left, the left aileron will go up, which decreases lift on that wing, and the right aileron will go down, increasing lift on that wing. Was something wrong with the flight controls that caused something to go wrong with the ailerons, perhaps? There are multiple facets to that particular system. Actuators, linkages, hydraulics, etc. To determine any of that, the wreckage had to be recovered first. The nose was embedded in the mud, hence why uh, the flight crew didn't live. Yeah, the nose, it went nose first into the river, FYI. Making it difficult to get that part of the plane out. It took a floating bridge and three heavy lift vehicles from the Army Engineering Corps to get out most of the wreckage and all deceased passengers. About 15% of the wreckage, mostly aft sections, were unrecovered. Huh. That's weird, since the aft is the thing that didn't get hit that bad. I thought so, too. Maybe it's because it went down the river, though. That, that's the, that good good point. <laughs> water moves. Yes, it does. Fun yes, fact. water does fun, move. Fun fact, in a river, <laughs> Particularly when you're in a river. That's kind of the whole definition of a river, is a moving body so of water. It's out, it's out in the ocean somewhere. Probably. So all of this was sent to the Songshan Air Force Base for examination. So was anything wrong with those flight control surfaces? Long story short, no. Great. Uh-huh. Solid. I, I could go through all of the, Nothing's wrong with those. So what else could cause an aircraft to turn in an uncommanded fashion, otherwise known as uncommandedly in the dictionary written by me? Yeah. Hey. We went over this for a while. It sounds fine to me. We went over this I'm, for a while. We but make apparently... up words all the time here. Yes, we do. So you don't usually. No. But we do. It's usually our job. But yeah. This one, this was a word that everybody agrees with you. Sounds like a word. Uncommandedly. But it's not a word. So what could cause an aircraft to turn uncommandedly, Miranda? Well, when you have one engine off. Yeah, that'll do it. The other one's having too much power. Asymmetric lift. Yep. So if in that scenario you had more power in the right engine than the left, you would begin to turn left since the right wing would then have more air flowing over it and therefore more lift. Was something wrong with the left engine? Investigators well, asked since they did not have the CVR at this oh, point. Well, I'm like, well, the engine was turned off, so <laughs> they don't they don't know that yet. Well, not yet, but a bore scope analysis was performed, which is basically a camera on the end of a tube used to access normally inaccessible areas. Don't come for me. I know it's not a literal camera, but that it achieves the same thing. Okay, you can see in small cramped areas like inside an engine. 
But this borescope analysis showed no anomalies, no internal damage, and all moving parts were still capable of operation. Well, that's weird. You telling me that they shut off the wrong engine? So, <laughs> to hell with it. Let's look well, at the right engine. <laughs> okay. At, at first glance, something was very clear with the right engine. The propeller blades were feathered. So, let's dive into this a little bit. We haven't talked about it in... Literal months. I think we talked the last time we talked about it was like last year in November. So like a year ago. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about it then. These engines are constant speed propellers. So to increase engine power, quote unquote, you have to change the angle of the blades, which then changes how much the blade cuts through the air. These particular engines had a built-in safety feature where if they sense something is wrong with the engine, it will auto-feather the blades, meaning the blades will move so that they aren't cutting any air, which minimizes drag on that engine. It's kind of like setting your car in neutral. Didn't we talk about this during one of the bird strikes? Yeah, actually, you're right. We did talk about it during a bird strike. Do I remember which one? No. No. Anyway. But we did talk about it during a bird strike. I'm pretty sure there was a bird strike auto-feather pun somewhere. Sure. Anyway. So, this means that the computer system for the right engine sensed that something was so wrong that it auto-feathered. But the plane was banked to the left. Anyway. Also, there's nothing mechanically wrong with the right engine. Let's just throw that out there right now. So why the hell did the, 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 the thing feather? Wait, what? what? Note. What? I said mechanical. Let's see if there's something wrong otherwise. How did could something we... hit it? No. Oh, well. That's mechanical. I don't know. <laughs> so, how else could we tell something's wrong with the engine? The flight data recorder. We have that now. Wait, 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 wait. Can, can the flight crew feather the engine themselves? No. Okay. Actually, well, well, they, they can, can, but not auto feather. They can. Yes. Oh, okay. So, the data from the right engine looked pretty normal up until it feathered, and then it behaved like a feathered engine would, all except for uh, one parameter. The torque of engine two did something really weird. We have the graph of the flight data recorder. Miranda, please describe the graph of the torque. Jesus Christ. You'll know because it's kind of towards the middle of the page. And you'll see what it looks weird. Are the blue lines what it's supposed to look like? No, the blue lines are what it looks like. Okay. I'm Notice gonna... anything strange? Uh, it it's keep it's going up and down. Yeah, it keeps peaking. It's like zigzagging like some mountains. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps peaking in like a perfect frequency. Yeah, like it... literally over and over and over again. How would an engine even do that? An engine in doesn't. Torque. An engine doesn't react that quick. No. In producing torque, torque is what actually produces thrust. Yeah, I don't know. So, it's really weird. It's also cyclical. So, investigators sent the auto feather unit to the lab for investigation. That's all the Air Disasters episode said about it. But what really happened was that the, this part, along with other parts from Engines 1 and 2, were also sent to the TSB in Canada, who analyzed them with the help of... The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, Transport Canada, the BEA, Pratt & Whitney Canada, UTC Aerospace Systems, and the ASC. Wow. To yes. name a few. To name all of them. <laughs> Specifically, the auto feather on Engine 2 went on to be further examined by its manufacturer, UTC Aerospace Systems, or UTAS, in Egan slash Burnsville, Minnesota. Minnesota. The auto feather unit, or AFU, did not pass a continuity test. What? Wait, what? It did not have a continuous signal. So this is the electrical system that 
is supposed to be a safety feature for which, the airplane. Which makes sense, because you see that on the FDR. It's not continuous in any sense of the word. No. So, also, the resistance for two connector pins fluctuated. The resistance for these two pins should be pretty steady. It fluctuated be- between 1 and 20 ohms. Oh my gosh. Which is a lot. Jeez. The component maintenance manual only allowed for a variance of 0.35 ohms. So it varied a lot. A lot, a lot. A lot. Now, I'm all for mechanical testing, but this is electronics and is so not my wheelhouse, so I won't insult anyone by trying to decipher all of the testing jargon they did. (laughs) But it did come back through a computed tomography scan, otherwise known as a CT scan. Uh I, I know that one. I've covered enough medical crap. Wow. That the circuit boards in the AFU had a solder failure and were cracked. A solder failure? Uh-huh. <gasps> no. Enough, yes. enough that the signal from the <laughs> torque sensor to the AFU looked the way it did on the FDR and led the AFU to believe that something was wrong with the engine. So it feathered. Nothing was wrong with the engine. There was nothing actually wrong with the engine. The unit just failed. The safety unit failed and feathered the engine. Oh, no. And then they shut down the wrong engine. Because that was on the right engine. What engine did they shut down? We'll the get to it. The left it. Uh, see, I still don't understand why they shut down the left Hold engine. Hold on. We'll get there. I'm not there yet. <laughs> so, There's a lot to unpack. Now for something that was not in the Air Disasters episode, which I know I've said that phrase a lot over the years, I can say now, but I'm still aggravated by this. So, I didn't know this happened until I read the report a few hours ago. <laughs> uh, this whole uncommanded, or uncommandedly... Auto feather in flight, it happened on another TransAsia Airways ATR-72 a few days after the accident. Oh, did that flight, was that okay? It was okay. It had altitude. Oh. It did okay. Okay. This AFU was also sent to the manufacturer along with the accident one. They also probably didn't shut off the wrong engine. Yeah, that too, probably. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) It turns out that the two AFUs had been manufactured eight units away on the manufacturing line from each other. They were made the same week. Dang. It also had compromised solder joints. Well, now we got a problem. Now we got a real Now we problem. got a manufacturing problem. So it actually turns out that Pratt & Whitney had been aware of the AFU technical issues because of such events since 2005 and had proposed service bulletins starting in 2007, one of which was elongatedly titled, Aging of the Auto Feather Unit AFU Electrical Connectors and Interconnect Ribbon Solder Joints Can Lead to Loss of Torque Signal. Jesus. That's oddly specific, but also pertinent. Okay. That's exactly what's going on here. It specifically mentioned actions to be taken before 12,000 hours. Well, these two units were at 1,624 hours and 1,206 hours. They were like brand new. Uh Uh-huh. In the grand scheme of things. This suggests that the issue isn't due to aging. No, it's due to bad manufacturing. You said it, not me. (laughs) As such... A new service bulletin was issued eight months after the crash to replace the auto feather control with a new and improved model. So, we know what went wrong with engine 2 now, but that still doesn't explain why they banked to the left. And as the investigators still don't know at this point, turned off the left engine. Going back to the flight data recorder, let's look at engine 1 and see if anything was weird. Now, this is where they found out the power decreased to engine 1. That was gradually reduced through the chaos manually as in controlling the fuel flow which is done with a throttle right okay i I don't like that do you like that i don't like that i don't like that 
The crew shut off their only working engine. Yeah. Why the hell would they do that, as Miranda's been incessantly asking? Yeah, I still don't know why. So the investigators went to their best resource for discerning pilot intention. The airline? The cockpit voice recorder. Oh, well, yeah, that too. (laughs) They do visit the airline eventually. Yes. Well, I would hope so, because, man. Yeah. After the master warning went off, the captain was quick to disconnect the autopilot and say that he was shutting down engine number one. Quote, I will pull back on engine one throttle, end quote. Yeah, yeah, okay, so that's where I get confused. Like, yeah, master caution, but then why immediately jump to... When I say quickly, I mean he didn't have time to intake any information from the computers in the cockpit as to what the problem was and why the master caution was going on. See, see, then why'd he just shut off an engine? He didn't have time. According to the airline's standard operating procedures, the crews are advised to, quote, take all necessary time to analyze situation before acting, and later, before performing a procedure, the crew must assess the situation as a whole, taking into consideration the failures when fully identified and the constraints imposed, end quote. The first officer had done a whole four seconds of trying to assess the situation before the captain retarded the engine one power lever. Four Four seconds. Four seconds is nothing. Nothing. He was just like, nope, I'm doing this. Now, for a question many of you might have, and Miranda might already have asked by at this point, which she hasn't, and the script writing me didn't know that yet. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's in my brain, but I haven't said it because I don't want to interrupt anymore. Why didn't the first officer stop him? I guess it didn't really come up. (laughs) To be honest, we've talked about, like, (sighs) countries like Taiwan, Asian countries. Sometimes captains do things. Some. First officer. Well, wait, yes. no, because this first officer is more experienced than the captain. Yeah. So yeah. why the hell? What the hell? So. Wait a minute. <laughs> so, wait. Yes, she got there eventually. We're, we're, we're getting there. Wait. So he did try anyway. To he stop actually him. did. He asked for a cross check, which is a way of saying. It literally means to affirm the action. Yeah. So basically, if the captain's going to decide to pull back that engine, then. The first officer should also agree with this verbally, Yes. out loud, say, okay, reduce the number one engine. He, however, did not say that. He said, wait a second, cross-check. He also called for an engine flame-out check, but the captain interrupted his request for a cross-check and instead asked for the heading mode to be selected instead while he pulled engine one further back down to 22% torque. The stall warning system activated, escalating the situation, and the captain called for the shutdown of engine one. Quote, By the time the pilot monitoring announced engine flameout on both sides and an engine restart was attempted, the aircraft was at an altitude from which recovery was not possible and a stall and a loss of control followed. End quote. So then why didn't the first officer say my aircraft and take over before he shut off the engine? Good question. Basically, it was chaotic. And it was a short period of time. Well, yes, I understand that. But I still don't understand why the captain, who, yes, least experienced in the cockpit, okay? The person we're talking about anyway. Why he jumped to the conclusion that, one, there was something wrong with the engine. Because master caution can be for a lot of things, not just engine power. Two, why he immediately jumped to the number one engine. And three, why he wouldn't listen to anybody else. Do you bring up this exact sentence right here said by the first officer? Because this is very important. He did say this while they were flying. 
after the captain had pulled back the power on engine number one, the first officer even stated out loud, Okay, now number two engine flameout confirmed. Number two engine flameout. And the, f- the captain said, Okay. He told him out loud that it was the right engine. Because at that point, the engine had feathered? Yes, it did say on the display, it says auto feather under engine number two, which takes a second to find. Give me a second. Yeah, I was okay. say, to explain. She's going to get there. Later in the CVR, the captain asked the first officer to restart the engine. He, I don't recall him saying which engine to restart. Well, uh, yeah, he doesn't. The, it doesn't say. He just says restart the engine eight times. And the first officer said, I can't. No, there's no time. To which the captain responded, though I don't know the exact nuance or intonation, oh well. Again, I don't know the intonation of that. I don't know how dismissive that was. Oh, and then my next question. Hold on. But I have another question. And then he realized verbally, oh, I shut off the wrong engine. No, Sherlock. His specific words were, wow, pulled back the wrong side throttle. And this was just seconds before they hit. Okay. Next question. Sorry. I have a lot of questions. It's okay. That's it's that's okay. your job. I'm sure you everyone else is that. like, what? Kind of. <laughs> anyway. For my next question is, if they had tried to turn the engine back on what, right after they turned the left engine off, would they have been able to restart it? No. There was not enough time. Period. If- they didn't have enough altitude or speed. If they had not turned off the left engine to begin with, even if they had just pulled it back. We'll talk about that. I imagine you have all that. Okay. Because that's way more complicated. Okay. That is my last point, so let's wait for that. Okay. Now, to put it really frankly, why did the captain do something so dumb? Let's dig into his records. His training records show that he didn't do great in an emergency. Oh, no. He passed everything, but sometimes it took a few tries. I hesitate to say that just because you can't pass something on your first try means you suck, but you did you did ultimately study and work hard enough to pass it, but it was still deemed a factor. Yes. I, I'm going to move on from that because I don't like dwelling on things I don't like. His training records also reflect that he had been let go from an airline before. Now, this seems really damning the way I just said that, but pause and let me explain a bit. The captain was just coming out of his military career and was trying to transition to flying an... A330. That's big. Big. Oh, yeah, from a jet? Yeah. (laughs) Wide body. Big ol' wide body bird. He went from zero to 100 real quick, and it didn't go great. So, he went to flying regional birdies instead. You know, where you should start, probably. But even those records were... I don't know. great, yeah. So, he has about 5,000 total flying hours, right? Well, only 250 of those were on the ATR-72-600, as Nick had mentioned way before now. So, he doesn't have a ton, but he's flown before. What makes the ATR-72-600 so different? It was the first airplane he flew that had a glass cockpit. Nick, can you explain what that means? Glass cockpit means it's computer screens. It's all computer screens. Instead of having these little round dial gauges with manual indicators or anything like that, the entire cockpit is made up of... Computer screens yeah. that display all the same information, just in computerized a computerized form. In a different way, it also allows this airplane to be a lot smarter. It can tell you a lot more about the things that are going on. But if you don't know how to use it, that that's can useless. Be useless to you and overwhelming, frankly. Well, and yes. that's true. But you still have to have training time on those kind of correct 
I mean, even if it's just flying in there, like, because they did a round trip in yes. this airplane, Correct. right? I'm assuming he would have been the person flying, maybe not, I don't know. Don't know. But the more you fly in the cockpit, the easier it is for you to understand how it works. Correct. Right? However, jumping straight to a conclusion without trying to figure out the problem, that's not going to help you at all. Nope. I realize he was just trying to help, like he was trying to fix the problem, but when you don't know what the problem is, don't just immediately go to shutting off an engine. So, now here's the next question. He only has 250 flying hours on the ATR. Why is he still flying the captain's position without further training? Now we come to the operator issue. TransAsia was going through a huge expansion and had to hire many pilots accordingly, which in this case also involved advancing pilots quickly up the ladder. Maybe before they should have been. The problem I have with this, though, is there was another captain in the cockpit that had more hours than he did. Mm-hmm. So why was this captain the captain and not the first officer? Both of them were in kind of a similar situation. That's not to say that the first officer isn't more experienced, because he was. But both of them are relatively new to the ATR-72-600. The, the first officer, or the Captain B, as they put it in the report, still had less than 1,000 hours on this type. He only had 700 and some hours. Yeah, but that's more than type. 250. It yes, is more than 250. Yes, but you still have two relatively untrained on-this-aircraft pilots paired together. They're both a similar age, similar training, similar level on this well, airplane. The next problem that we have, though, even when you say that with training, right? Mm -hmm. If this is a relatively new aircraft to the airline... Almost mm -hmm. every captain you put in that cockpit is going to have the same problem. Correct. Really, they need to be training more before they actually deployed this aircraft in their fleet. So you've pretty much hit the head on the nail because what's really going on here is it's not, it's not any one of their problem. It's an airline problem because they didn't train either one of them enough for the airplane. The airplane should not have been used yet. They yeah. didn't have the staff for it. But because they were expanding their routes so rapidly, they're like, hey, we have these airplanes. Let's use them. We got to get these people through training quick, 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 quick. Throw them in the cockpit. <laughs> that obviously went fantastically. Now, obviously. So my, both of them are in the same boat. For my very last point, which will answer some of Miranda's questions. Many of Miranda's questions? I hope so. <laughs> Investigators decided to run a flight simulator session to see what could have been done in this situation. Uh-huh. Obviously, they found the situation to be recoverable, as it should have been if the captain had acted appropriately. Right. It would have been fine if he just assessed the situation. What was more interesting was that they found that if the crew had done nothing. Nothing at all. And left the autopilot on, they would have been safe. They That's would have... upsetting. The airplane is actually fully capable of climbing to its cruising altitude on one engine. Yeah, we've talked about that before. It's supposed to be able to fly with one engine. But the autopilot would have taken them to a safe altitude specifically. They could have just taken their hands off the controls, their hands and feet off the controls, and just sat there and had time to assess the situation before making a decision and turning around and going back to the airport. To play devil's advocate, though. No, I get it. That's yeah. not what they're trained to do. It, no pilot's trained to do that, especially when a master caution's going off. But they are trained they are. to pause and assess. Yes. Right. Well, eventually you have to take the autopilot off, right? No, you don't. No. Actually, fun fact. That's what that simulator session proved. And they were not, ne I don't believe that they were necessarily supposed to turn off the autopilot. Specifically, no, actually. What happened specifically when this happened, when this incident occurred, was as soon as the engine malfunction, we'll say, 
occurred, the master caution kicked on, and a checklist popped up on their screen. They don't even have to go looking for the checklist. Nope, it popped up on the screen with exactly which engine had the problem and what to do next. The steps were to leave the autopilot engaged, follow the steps to prevent a flame out on the engine any further, shut down the engine if necessary, reduce the power to it, fly the airplane as normal using the autopilot, and safely return to the airport using the autopilot. They wouldn't have had to do anything different than they would normally. The checklist, specifically, on the airplane, told them to do this, but they didn't follow it. He well, never if, had to disconnect the autopilot. If they didn't know how to use the checklist, though, if they didn't he know how didn't to use know. the... He didn't know. The first officer... There's, there's some evidence that the first officer knew, because he's the one who called out and confirmed that it was the number two engine yeah. that had the flame out. He confirmed that on the checklist screen on the, the airplane. So he saw this. He knew that that was exist- in existence. That's why he wanted the cross-check, is because he noted that on the screen. But... The captain reacted faster than he could do anything about it. So there's there's a lot to this, but basically, yes, neither one of them were trained enough for this airplane. Crew resource management broke down very, very quickly when the captain in the left seat, pilot flying, decided to knee-jerk everything about the situation instead of following the procedures, following what should have been trained, what ATR suggests, and in a situation like this, allowed the airplane to basically fly itself while they assessed the situation and then returned to the airport safely. Instead, he took over and actually caused the situation to be exponentially worse. Yeah. Yikes. Which, there's two parts to that, just like she explained. Part one, there's all of the bit about the training, which, okay, they weren't trained enough for this kind of situation, like they should have been. Because all of this was there, all of this existed, they just weren't trained on it. Part two, the captain's training records show that he had a knee-jerk reaction to situations like this. So, it wasn't even necessarily that only training fell short. If he knew what to do, and at least he was trained on that enough, his knee-jerk reaction may have been more likely to follow the training he was giving, given. But, point is, is he still had a knee-jerk reaction anyway, so he did the wrong thing. He figured that out way too late. No, way too late. Yep. He did realize it eventually, unfortunately. So we're going to take a, a brick break after that. Get a snack. Yeah, I want a snack. Drink a drink. And we'll uh, come back. For okay. Some conclusion. Break a break! This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, we're back. And you're eating olives. You might hear some clinking of jar. What did you get? Nothing? Nope. You didn't get anything? Nah. Oh. I wanted nothing tickled my fancy, so. Oh, okay. Okay, let's do some findings and some recommendations. There were actually quite a few findings and recommendations, and I'm only doing some of them, because there were far too many. Yeah, I figured. With a Taiwanese report. Yep. So, in regards to the power plant, or the engine, they found that the available evidence indicated that the intermittent discontinuity between torque sensor and auto feather unit number two was probably caused by the compromised soldering joints inside the AFU number two. Pretty straightforward. Yes. 
the issue. Issue number one. So there you go. On to flight operations. They found that TransAsia did not have a clear documented company policy with associated instructions, procedures, and notices to the crew for the ATR-72600 operations communicating the requirement to reject the takeoff if the automatic takeoff power control system did not arm. So there is no real procedure for doing that because this is not a required piece of equipment for takeoff. So I kind of somewhat disagree with them on this one, but... It, it would have been more pertinent to me if they had said that it would have been more useful in training for the crews to understand that when this unit is showing an issue during their takeoff roll, more than likely the AFU is not functioning correctly. Something's wrong with the AFU. But the Airworthiness Directive was supposed to fix that whole AFU problem anyways. They found that following the uncommanded auto feather of engine number two, the flight crew failed to perform the documented failure identification procedure before executing any actions. That resulted in pilot flying's confusion regarding the identification and nature of the actual propulsion system malfunction, and he reduced power on the operative engine, number one. Yeah. So, they just didn't follow procedure. Nope. Pretty much what that breaks down to. They found that the flight crew's non-compliance with TransAsia Airways ATR-72600 standard operating procedures, abnormal and emergency procedures for an engine flameout at takeoff, resulted in the pilot flying, reducing power on, and then shutting down the wrong engine. Yeah. I still am not quite sure why he immediately jumped to the number one engine. Like I said, two things. He wasn't trained. Two, his... There's a, there's a couple things with that. Two, the, he was knee-jerk. The investigators also called it change blindness. Yes. Fixated on one item so that they miss a distinguishable change in the environment. I did not feel it necessary to write that anywhere necessarily in my analysis, but it was in the Air Disasters episode. Change blindness in that he became it's fixated. fixated. He became fixated on the fact that it, on the number one engine, basically, in his own mind, this was the problem. And then, he, so he wouldn't take in any information saying otherwise. Right. Even though the first officer was trying to tell him, no, hey, no, 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 it's the number two. And he even replied, okay. I'm fixated on engine one. He was fixated on engine one. In his mind, he heard engine one. He kept reducing power on engine one. He eventually shut off engine one. He was so fixated on this that he was just completely blind to the fact that everything in the cockpit and the first officer were both trying to tell him it's the other engine. And truly, we'll never know what led him to be so fixated because he did not live to tell the tale. I guess right. that's true. I just, I find it interesting that the master caution can go off not just for power plants. Oh, no, I can go off for thousands of reasons. Yeah, and that he immediately went to engine one was just interesting. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, it was an engine, so that's kind of, like, impressive that he thought it was an engine, but it right. was the wrong engine. There was probably an indicator said that an en something was wrong with an engine. He probably saw that on a computer screen. Well, and he's sitting on the left. He's thinking left, for one. And then, two, when that engine feathered... There's a change in the way the airplane's going to behave right. all of a sudden. And in his mind, that little bit of vertigo he might have had might have led him to think it was the left engine. Oh, but we'll right. never know. I mean, all those are good theories. We'll never I know. I think. We can only speculate, but that doesn't hold up in court. So, In fact, you can't use any report in court on fact. Yeah, you can't use any kind of uh, speculation or as anything a, like as that. As a fact-finding for a court case. 
Mm-hmm. Though, though I still recommend if you're going to sue an airline, I recommend waiting for the investigative report. Just saying. Yes. They found that the loss of engine power during the initial climb and inappropriate flight control inputs by the pilot flying generated a series of stall warnings, including activation of the stick pusher. The crew did not respond to the stall warnings in a timely and effective manner. So they just basically didn't react to the actual stall happening at all. I don't know if it would have helped. The engine that was used that was useful was turned off. I yes. Like pushing the aircraft down to get airspeed, would that have helped with a feathered engine? At this point, I'm not sure. Yeah. But at the same time there's that little bit of I don't know, could it have? And this goes kind of hand in hand with Colgan Air, where it's like they didn't take that action. Instead, they kept kind of pulling back and holding the nose up. And so the airplane eventually just went into an aerodynamic stall that fell straight into the river. Yeah. So they kind of put themselves in a situation. I mean, there was a lot of ways they put themselves into a situation they shouldn't have been in. But this, in specific, they didn't make any attempt to correct the stall in a way that's normally trained. Right. So that. They found that the flight crew coordination, communication, and threat and error management were less than effective and compromised the safety of the flight. Both operating crew members failed to obtain relevant data from each other regarding the status of both engines at different points in the occurrence sequence. The pilot flying did not appropriately respond to the integrated input from the pilot monitoring. What does that really mean? Crew resource management. Yeah. Which they get into a lot more here shortly. Okay. In regards to the AFU. A.K.A. the auto... Auto feathering unit, in yeah. case you haven't picked up on that by this point. Right. They found that the engine manufacturer attempted to control intermittent con- continuity failures of the auto feather unit by introducing a recommended inspection service bulletin at 12,000 flight hours to address aging issues. The two AFU failures at 1624 flight hours and 1206 flight hours show that causes of intermittent continuity failures of the AFU were not only related to aging, but also to other previously undiscovered issues and that the inspection service bulletin implemented by the engine manufacturer to address this issue before the occurrence was not sufficiently effective. The engine manufacturer had issued a modification addressing the specific finding of this investigation. So this was mentioned a little bit in the analysis, and I didn't want to get too material sciencey on you all, but now I feel like it's apt. This whole thing will require a lot more material science analysis, and I assume this already happened at the manufacturer for the AFU, Mm -hmm. because there was weird things going on with the microstructure of the soldering material. Yes. They found cracking within the soldering. Yes. So they found cracking, but what causes cracks? Fatigue. And what causes fatigue? Overstress and wrong In this case, it's a material defect. Right. I was going to so say. So a material defect leads to the beginning of the propagation, or to the beginning of the crack, and then the crack propagates with force. Yeah. So as the engine's running, as it's vibrating, what have you. But what they're trying to, de- what I assume they ultimately determined was what started the crack. Right. This sounds more similar to UA-232. Exactly. Because the- any material is going to crack eventually. It has a life term but if it's contaminated then there's a lot higher likelihood that it would crack yeah and this was like right out the gate because the engines were fairly new at least the afus were yes so that i would suspect probably a vacancy in the microstructure or substitution somewhere similar to ua-232 but i am not privy to that research information as for flight operations 
They found that the pilot flying's decision to disconnect the autopilot shortly after the first master warning increased the pilot flying's subsequent workload and reduced his capacity to assess and cope with the emergency situation. So that's the whole thing, right? Is that he disconnected the autopilot right away. Yeah. If he had waited to disconnect the autopilot and taken a moment to assess what was going on, he would have been way more likely to be able to fly that airplane if he still did disconnect the autopilot sometime later. But he wasn't even required to do that. Yeah, I feel like what I was trying to ask earlier is if the problem was so bad the airplane couldn't fly with the autopilot, the autopilot nope. would automatically shut off. Nope. The airplane was fine. The reason they couldn't re-engage the autopilot later is because they were in a stall. Well, no, that's what I mean. I'm not meaning that they, they should have turned off the autopilot. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. If the airplane, if mm-hmm. he had just waited, if yep. the airplane was in a situation where right. it could not can, like fly itself, mm-hmm. the autopilot would have shut off by itself. Right. But it didn't. Right. He shut it off. But he never right. waited to see if the autopilot would shut off after Correct. the master caution went off. Correct. He just took over control of the airplane. Right. That's what I mean. That's yes. what I was trying to say earlier. Yes. If the plane was in a dangerous situation that it couldn't fly itself and it was like, <laughs> not my problem, right. no, it would just, have shut off itself. No, he just assumed that that might happen. Right. So he took control of the airplane and it didn't. It wouldn't have. The airplane would have kept flying itself. Right. It was designed that way. He found that the omission of the required pre-takeoff briefing meant that the crew were not as mentally prepared as they could have been for the propulsion system malfunction they encountered after takeoff. Do you have any guesses why that was omitted? Because they were behind schedule? Nope. I read it ever so briefly. They had a non-sterile cockpit. Yeah, they were chit-chatting about other stuff. That I didn't know. I mean, they had just taken this flight... Yes, but still... I realize that there's still sterile cockpit rules. You still have to do checklists, etc. But coming from a a person with an outside perspective, if you just did this flight, you landed perfectly fine, you're turning around doing it again, yeah, you would think, oh, it's just the same thing we did before. And you would definitely think so, but this is why sterile cockpit rules are extremely important. Right. And international regulations, the ICAO, the IATA, all mandate that sterile cockpit be held in place for all commercial operations below 10,000 feet. Yes. Around the world. This is just the standard. Because this will make sure that the cockpit is going to be safe during the most critical points of flight. That was this. They were not doing these things, and so they completely omitted their takeoff briefing, which is where you normally go through. If we take off and we have an engine failure shortly after takeoff, what do we do? They didn't do that. So they weren't ready for it when it did happen. To the airline, they found that TransAsia Airways did not use widely available crew resource management guidelines to develop, implement, reinforce, and assess the effectiveness of their flight crew crew resource management training program. So they had a crew resource management program, but not a great one, and they weren't using it effectively. They found that the ATR-72600 differences training records for the 235 flight crew showed that Captain A, the the pilot flying captain, Probably needed more training on the single-engine flame-out at takeoff procedure. No, really. That meant if the differences training records were stored, adequately maintained, and evaluated by appropriate TransAsia Airways flight operations and or quality assurance personnel, the TransAsia Airways operations would have had yet another opportunity to review Captain A's ability to handle engine-out emergencies. So they didn't even keep proper records of the fact that he wasn't trained well on this. So they didn't even have the opportunity to fix that later. They found that Captain A's performance during the occurrence was consistent with the performance weaknesses 
noted during his training, including his continued difficulties in handling emergency and or abnormal situations, including engine flame out at takeoff and single engine operations. However, TransAsia Airways did not effectively address the evident and imminent flight safety risk that Captain A presented. They knew he had a problem when he came to the company. It was apparent on his records, and they did nothing about it. They found that the Civil Aeronautics Administration oversight of flight crew training, including crew resource management training, is in need of improvement. So literally just the organization in Taiwan and in China that oversees all of this weren't doing any oversight. Oh, well, shocker. Hate to say that, but that doesn't surprise me. They found that the systemic TransAsia Airways flight crew noncompliances with standard operating procedures identified in previous investigations, including Flight 222, remained unaddressed at the time of Flight 235 occurrences. That is a Miranda sode for all of you who want to hear what Flight 222 is all about. So there. I did that. Yeah. Boils down to that. You have to be a first class patron to hear that. So that's all of the findings. They don't really have a probable cause. <laughs> That's the, all the findings I'm going to do. I'm going to leave it at that. Because there was plenty more. Most of them were pretty similar. Because, for whatever reason, uh, investigative authorities love repeating themselves over and over a again. A lot. They tend to nuance certain things, but it becomes really unconsequential when you break it down. And the Taiwanese have proven to be particularly loquacious and verbose. Yes. On to the recommendations, which there was a lot more of these. But we're not doing a lot more of these. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try to summarize a few of these because some of them are very long-winded. But the first one's not. To TransAsia Airways. They recommend documenting a clear company policy with associated instructions, procedures, training, and notices to crew members for ATR-72-600 operations communicating the requirement to reject a takeoff in the event that the automatic takeoff power control system is not armed as required. So they would like it if they just stopped trying to take off when the ATPCS doesn't operate during takeoff. Right. Again, that's really hard to uphold. I mean, as an airline, I guess you could put that in place, but it is not a required piece of equipment for takeoff, so this doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of operational sense. They shouldn't be relying on it, is kind of my point. They shouldn't be relying on the ATPCS to exist. It is a nice feature of the airplane. They should not be relying on it. Right. And the crew weren't, but they also weren't trained in what it means. So that's kind of why this created an issue. They recommend conducting a thorough review of the airline's flight crew training program, including recurrent training, crew resource management training. Wow. Upgrade training, differences training, and device system systematic measures to ensure that, one, standardized flight crew check and training are conducted. Two, all flight crews comply with standard operating procedures. Wow, what a concept. Three, all flight crews are proficient in handling abnormal and emergency procedures, including engine flame out at takeoff. One of the most critical. And four, the the airlines use widely available guidelines to develop, implement, reinforce, and assess the effectiveness of the flight crew resource management training program, particularly the, the practical application of those skills in handling emergencies. They go on with a couple more, but that's really kind of the important stuff. It's just the crew resource management, the training bits, differences training. It's like we have a t-shirt, guys. Uh-huh. On mm-hmm. our merch page. It's like that exists. It exists. Yep. The fact that crew resource management was still a failure in 2015 and is today is aggravating. Sad. It's just sad. 
Yeah. Oh, you, you guys took a... two very different it's sad. courses than I did. I'm just pissed. There's other people in the cockpit for a reason. Yes. Just Is it saying. so hard to work as a team? No. When you well, have... according to people who can't do it, yes. When you have Apparently. not only other people's lives in your hands, but your own. Yeah. Right. They recommend improving the airline's internal quality assurance oversight and audit processes to ensure the recurring safety training and administrative problems are identified and rectified in a timely manner. Oversight, 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 oversight. Any processes and procedures are useless if it's not being enforced. Right. That's how anything works. This is a problem I've faced at uh, jobs. That <laughs> Not to name any. <laughs> that... Accountability is a big piece when it comes to putting processes and procedures in place that people forget. You can put as many processes and procedures in place as you want to try to fix problems, but if you don't hold people accountable to those... And if they don't give a damn... Then there is no fixing this problem. And so oversight is usually kind of how you hold people accountable, because then you can put actions in place that require them to comply. Otherwise, they either lose their job, the company shuts down for a while... They have to go through extensive retraining, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it be, accountability is a big piece. To the Civil Aeronautics Administration, they recommend implementing a highly robust regulatory oversight process to ensure that the airline safety improvements in response to the investigation, audits, or inspections are implemented in a timely and effective manner. Why they brought this up is because the Civil Aeronautics Administration knew that TransAsia Airways had problems with training and with the ATR, and they identified this on record, but then they did nothing about fixing this. They didn't do any extra oversight or any kind of accountability to the airline. They recommend providing inspectors with detailed guidance on how to evaluate the effectiveness of operator non-technical training programs, such as crew resource management and threat and error management training programs. Just straightforward. To the engine manufacturer and the aircraft manufacturer, they recommend working with manufacturers of the auto feather unit and airframe to assess the current operating parameters and aircraft risks associated with the Pratt & Whitney 127 series engine auto feather unit to minimize or prevent occurrences that could result in uncommanded auto feather. This was quickly fixed because they put out an airworthiness directive to replace these auto feather units with ones that did not have this problem. Yeah. And that happened before this report came out. Yes, it did. Which they do mention further down in this report, and they it go happened through... happened in October. That was the last of my recommendations. So they go through all of these other things that have been fixed. The airline put in crew resource management training. There was a lot more oversight put in place, both by the Civil Aeronautics Administration and then also by the airline itself. There was so many things that did happen, but then there's one big piece here that fixed everything. TransAsia Airways went under. In 2016. Not... Very long after this. No, We've heard I, about I think things. it was in November. We've heard about things like this happening quite a few times after things like this occur. Accidents well, like this occur. So there is flight 222, there's flight 235, then there was another issue right. days after 235. Like, I'm not at all surprised. No. Yeah, they, so, went, they ceased operations on November 22nd, 2016. And a lot of these... So what kind of gen tends to happen is people jump into creating airlines very quickly they realize that okay this can make money they don't even have to charge much for tickets they can get a ton of passengers so they become low-cost carriers like transasia airways they get a lot of passengers flying on their little routes but they did so kind of haphazardly where they had to grow very quickly without really taking into account what they're actually doing they don't do enough oversight and they don't realize what it actually costs 
per passenger to operate this airline, to operate with all these procedures in place and all the training that's actually needed. That all costs money, a lot of it. Aviation is not a cheap industry. Not at all. And so when you wonder why, like, oh, my ticket's so expensive and blah, blah, blah. and But you have to understand that's because these You're airlines... You're paying for your safety. Yeah, these airlines have to pay for all this stuff somehow. It's not just fuel. It's not just the airplanes themselves. It's not just the pay for the crew. It's all the training. It's all the facilities. It's all the oversight. It's all the everything. And so airlines like this kind of haphazardly grew very, very quickly. Didn't do enough oversight. They didn't really understand what it meant to go through all the training, what it cost to go through all of this. And then when they did have to implement it after these accidents, this is what happens in a lot of cases, like we've talked about, where the airline goes under. They didn't understand what it was going to take. And then as soon as they were being held accountable, they were having to put all these processes and procedures in place. Suddenly they were having to spend a lot more money and their reputations ruined. So they end up tanking. It's pretty unfortunate, but these are also solvable issues that could have been done with the right management, the right training, the right oversight. That's pretty much what it boils down to completely in the rest of these recommendations and the things that uh, did change because they do have the list of the actions that were taken before the report even came out. ATR, on the other hand, and the engine manufacturer, Pratt & Whitney, both fixed the issue with the AFU. This was never an issue after that. They figured out how to prevent this from being cause of an accident. Now it just comes down to flight crew training. Okay, that was TransAsia Flight 235. There we go. <laughs> there you go. A uh, few things before we end the episode. First of all, I don't know if you guys saw, there was a person on Instagram that had told us that we had gotten something wrong on an episode a while ago. Tried to find the message. Someone deleted it. It was not me. So it was one of you two thinking it was spam. I, I didn't delete it. I don't know who it was. It's not there anymore. So if you were the person on Instagram that had told us that we had got something wrong, first of all, thank you. Uh, and we will revise it, but you need to send it to us maybe in an email instead of on Instagram because I cannot find it now. Also, Instagram has its own spam detection. Yeah. Crap, so, so if that was you and we haven't addressed it yet. It was for an episode, like, I think it was, maybe it was for, um... Was it the day the music died? No. Yes. Was it? Because we got a correction on the day the music died. Somebody sent us that. This was, like, I'm last pretty sure, week. I'm pretty sure it was on Instagram. Was it last week? I'm pretty sure. Because we it? both read it. Okay. I didn't read the whole thing, because you were typing we as it came in, and I wasn't... I yeah, we definitely didn't delete it. We were going to respond. We got, um, we got at least one correction notification of things in the day the music died episode. All of it was, I'm not like just trying to pin blame, but it was all Jen's stuff. So I don't know any of okay. her yeah. research. We stuff. do take, we'll take, we'll take responsibility. Thank yeah. you for correcting us because you did make actually good corrections. And I would like to. It was to... like pronunciation correction. Oh, okay. And then. Uh, the bar owner is male, not female. Oh, okay. Which their name is Carol. Which is why this was confused. Which, yeah, that makes so, sense. So, yes, the, all these things make sense. Uh, and uh, But just so you guys know, please message us either on Facebook, because then we, it, that can't go away, or on email, via email. Our email is on the website, or info at hardlandingspodcast.com. We do appreciate when you do correct us, because that means we did do something wrong. We are not perfect. We are human. So, please do that. Also, we got a listener question. We did. Um, this was from a while ago, and okay. we just haven't addressed it. Sorry. Oh. Uh, it was from our patron, Ash. Thanks, Ash. You're Thank you. You're awesome. 
they say, another question, feel free to just use it whenever, as I don't want to potentially get in the way of anyone else asking, which, by the way, no one else asks, so thank you. No worries. <laughs> this is to each of you, so each of us have to answer. Okay. Is there any plane crashes slash incidents that you have difficulty talking about or that you have found particularly sad? Obviously, all accidents where people die are sad, but some hit harder than others. For me, I struggle with Aeroflot 593 because of the fact that it was so avoidable and only happened due to a dad wanting to show off to his kids. I look forward to hearing your answers. Thank you. So I know that you've mentioned in the past there was one that was really hard for you to read, and I don't remember which one it was. It was one that was really hard for you to go through. I don't remember. Was it the one with the gangrene? No. No, no, it wasn't that, but it had... I don't remember. I feel like a complete ass for not remembering. To be fair, we've no, had okay. over 100 episodes, so... <laughs> yes, this does happen. Some of them I don't even remember what they're I can, about. I can think of... Screaming at, children. I can think of at least four flights that I refuse to cover. Yeah, and I know why. That's not... But I don't really know that that's what they're getting at. No, but I've seen enough documentaries of 9-11 that I don't think I could cover them, even if I tried. Yeah, and this one's... With anything 9-11, it's not really our wheelhouse. No. So even if you recommend it, we probably won't cover, cover it. it. Mostly because it's really not an aviation accident. You know what happened. You know how this went down. And this is not well, something then, that there's a report on. Since this year was the, the 20th anniversary, while I was driving home, I heard air traffic control recording of the flight that went down in Pennsylvania, and I could not hold it together. I was like almost home and had to almost stop because I could not. In that regard, yes, that would make it very hard. Um, any, think... any of the flights where they have to use DNA to identify the body? Yeah, that's rough. I'm, it's not that I gl glance over that, but I try to not dwell on it because I will just dig myself a hole. I um, will be right up front and honest that anytime there is an actual audible ATC recording or, or CVR, CVR, which the CVRs aren't usually released unless they're from another country, but then those are really hard, really, really hard to listen was it to. World Airways? Yes. The no the Western. West yeah, Western. In Western. Mexico City. Yeah. That one was rough. Uh, Uber Lingen rough. with all the kids on board. That I was have, a rough one. And I covered the the guy who murdered. Tried he did murder. No, he tried to murder. No, he did murder. He I did murder. Okay, I don't remember. <laughs> it was a long time ago. He did uh, murder. That murdered the ATC controller. Yes, he that did yes. murder. The made ATC. the mistake. Uh, that was pretty rough. The guy that killed his mom that just blew up a bunch of people. Um, that one was so old that it's kind of hard. And he had such a. That honestly, one's a lot more true crimey than. There is one that we will be covering that is really triggering and hard to talk about, and that is German Wings Flight 9525. Yeah. It is on our schedule. We do officially have a professional coming in to help discuss that one because there is so much on with regards to that flight that is not in our wheelhouse. Yes. I'm trying to think of any others that were particularly difficult, and honestly, off the top of my head, not that we've covered yet. Swiss Air 111 was... Yeah, that one's rough. I mean, it we because of the way we, we do crashes, I don't find it hard to cover. Like, even with Miranda Sos, I don't find it hard to cover. Because we dive so hard into the technical report. Right. We don't, the report doesn't dig into any of that. We don't really... 
talk about loss of life very much. We don't spend too much time on the morbid things. So, yeah, but like like I said, Uberlingen was rough cuz that has a portion where someone made a mistake and then they died for their mistake. And well, then, and then going back to Aeroflot, that's one of the ones that the CVR was released. Right. It's I'd, any of the ones where it, it gets it gets to you because you hear it happen or you hear them. The Alaska Airlines flight I covered uh, for my it. first Miranda episode. Yep, that one's rough because you can hear the the CVR. That's yeah. one of them that you the CVR was released. So. Right. All right, friendos. That was a great question. Yeah, it was yes. a good question. Way Thank to you. End it's definitely episode a with that. hard question. It too. is a hard God. question. Thank you so much for listening. As always, thanks to all our patrons. You guys are awesome and amazing. And thank you because you're the only reason this keeps going. Not the only reason. Well, all of our listeners are the only reason. Financial wise, like the podcast pays for itself now, right? We've talked about that. Like we don't have to take money out of our pocket to pay for anything for the podcast. So thank God. I'm hoping that in a few months' time, if we keep kind of saving up some money on the podcast here, we can upgrade our microphones. Yeah. And go to the really right stuff. Oh. And I know we haven't talked about it in a while, mostly because we haven't been doing anything about it, but we are eventually going to have a Patreon sweepstakes where we'll have a bunch of, we'll try to get a bunch of you guys to sign up and whoever signs up for Patreon in that given amount of time will be entered into a raffle to win a diamond painting of our logo signed by us. Yes. We might put a piece of merch in there too we'll see also if you're already a patron you will already be entered included yep you'll already be included in that uh i have to finish the diamond painting first and we have to seal it and all that stuff but that we'll get to there well that that'll happen eventually (laughs) this is mostly a reminder for us (laughs) yeah all right thank you so much for listening we hope you all stay safe stay healthy and we will catch you all next week keep Keep your speed up Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.